And so these are the things that we are holding each other accountable to and growing in. And recently I got a picture of how important family values are, not from the church context, but for the Wooliver family context. And so early November, my little sister got married and she asked if Ella would be a flower girl, which Ella was 18 months old at the time of the wedding. And so we knew that it probably wasn't gonna go super well. And Lauren did her best for weeks trying to train her. And by train, I mean bribe her with Fruit Loops to walk down a hallway and drop the flowers. And so by the time the day came, we knew there was no shot any flowers were coming out, okay? But we thought maybe, just maybe, she'd be able to make it down the aisle. And so if you've ever met Ella or just witnessed Ella from a distance, that girl is go, go, go full speed all the time, okay? I don't know who she gets that from, but it's not her mom, okay? And so um, let, me, let me give you a picture of the, the moment. Look at how cute she is. I mean, goodness gracious, that girl is cute. She's the one in the front, by the way, if, if you're new. Um, curly hair, I know you think she probably, you know, yep, you see the resemblance in the hair, hair color, type of hair, even complexion, I know. Um, but here's the thing. You see there's a, there's a ring bearer and another flower girl, both of which are older than Ella, but Ella, man, she takes off, right? She thinks this is a race and she's gonna win. And here's the thing, y'all, I was up there um, and I'm up front rooting them. Go, 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 you got it. Not only are you gonna get there, you're gonna win this race. Literally the, the girl, um, I was a bridesmaid. Okay, this, this is a true story. I did wear a tux, but I was a bridesmaid. And so I was actually standing beside the girl whose kids these two are. And I'm like, your kids are gonna lose. Your kids are gonna lose. Mine's gonna win, right? And so Ella's out front, she's winning. And what you can actually tell in this picture, can you see that her shoe has come off? Okay, this is the moment that everything starts to crumble. We could not keep that shoe on. Socks, no socks, anything. We could not keep her shoes on. So what, what I think you're beginning to see on her face is the moment that she realizes, my foot is touching grass, where am I? And what happens is she starts to look around, sees that there's a couple hundred people looking at her and she turns and she runs the other direction. I'm like, no, you had this. The wind was in the bag, Ella, what are you doing? And so what I realized is that, okay, one of our Wooliver family values is that Wolivers are finishers. We are not quitters. If you are winning a race, I don't care if you lose a shoe, girl, you're going to finish. Now, I'll be honest. I don't know that that's going to make it into our family values. If it was just up to me, I think it would, but I digress. But here's the thing. What I am clear on is that we want to give our kids clear language that they can rally around get inspired by, and even gain identity from. That this is who we are. Our family, we act like this. We operate like this. This is who we are, right? And there's a way we can do all that in a way that's actually really problematic. My goal is not to do that. Again, that's why I don't know that Wolivers or Finishers is gonna make it in there, right? But there's something that happens when you and I have a shared language that we are aspiring to, rallying around, and actually deriving identity from, right? And I think one of the ways I've seen this, right, one of the coaches that I think does this better than anybody is Dabo Sweeney, right? The all-in idea, the bring-your-own-guts concept, right? He could get guys, he could get more out of players because of what they all rallied 
around. And that's the goal for these family values for our church is that it's a unifying, clarifying, catalytic thing for us. And so the first family value that we're gonna look at actually over the next three weeks is the idea that we are true worshipers. We are true worshipers. And what this means is that you and I are gonna be distinct because we worship the right God in the right way. And the reason that we all have to start here is that whether or not we're Christians, we are all worshipers. And what I've noticed is that all of us are actually good at worship. We are all good at worshiping because we've been hardwired by God to be good at worshiping. But the reason that might be confusing is that you and I have been conditioned to think about worship as the thing we do when we sing in church. But that's not all that worship is, right? Just, here's just a basic definition of worship. Worship is giving honor and homage to an object regarded as sacred and the ceremonies involved in giving honor and homage. So if you think about that definition, there are actually plenty of ways that you and I worship or can worship things other than God and actually not know it. And so since I've said something positive about Clemson, I'm gonna go ahead and use them in a, as a negative. Why? Because I have the microphone and you can't stop me. No, but seriously, I think about the last time I went to a Clemson football game. I think it was 2020, 2021, I can't remember. But if you, if you zoom out at a, any big college football game, right? We'll pick on Clemson, but any college football game, well, you, if you notice, people are worshiping when they're there, right? Think about the, the opening ceremony that happens. What, what does everybody do at Clemson? They rub the rock and they run down the hill. And if you don't believe it's sacred, think about how people reacted when the rock got vandalized. That is a sacred object. And then just think about how it is basically a worship service with 100,000 people in a stadium. We sing songs together at the same time. We have someone leading an orchestra. It's just a really big band leading a really big worship service. And all we do, it's, it's, like the, it's like we're singing that we sing the same flipping thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over. At least the game that I was at, because Clemson was doing good. And I think I heard Tiger Rag 600 times. Yeah. Jonathan can't help but do it now, right? <laughs> right. And just, just think about how devoted people are to their teams, right? Think about how you see grown men have their life be worse because their team loses. Or the fact that a guy named Tyler from Spartanburg made national news because he had the audacity to call out Dabo on live radio, right? That's how serious we take all of this. And if you notice, there are certain people, typically um, not Americans in the South, but if you talk about people like in South America with soccer, they're real clear. They're like, oh yeah, this is a religion. This is a God. Practically speaking, we are worshiping teams. We are worshiping players. And here's what I've recognized. People are really, really good at it. And here's why. is ultimately God has wired within us the capacity to worship. Now he has wired us with that capacity so that we would worship him. But because of our sinful flesh, we don't naturally worship the right God in the right way. And so one of the things that sets you and I as Christians apart in our worship is prayer. 
right? Prayer is one of the ways that we worship God the right way, partially because we start by acknowledging that we are worshiping God. By praying God in the pattern that Jesus is gonna give us and we're gonna look at, we start by saying, hey, I am worshiping the right God. And not only that, we are acknowledging he is God and we are not, right? By, by saying, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we're saying, you're God, I'm not, by saying, God, I need you to give me what I need, we're saying, you are God and I am not. And so prayer is one of the ways that we worship God the right way. And so that's where we're going to start this morning, looking at Matthew 6, starting in verse 5, where Jesus is going to teach us about prayer. Now, this is not all that he says about prayer, but it's a good chunk. So let's, let's dive in, starting in verse 5. It says this, when you pray... Don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. All right, so notice, even though Jesus assumes that people who are listening are probably praying incorrectly, he is still assuming that they pray. He's saying, hey, when you pray, I want you to pray in the right way. And I just wonder, is the assumption that we're praying a safe assumption for Jesus to make? Because I think what I recognize is that you and I live in a really busy, chaotic, independent world that often does not default to prayer. And so I would ask, are you marked by a habit of praying? Because I think if we're not careful, we can have the same relationship with prayer that many of us have with diet and exercise. We know it's important. We know it's valuable. We feel our need to do it, but we don't have the discipline to do it with the regularity that we know we should. And so if you are somebody who prays regularly or you want to be someone who prays more regularly, notice that before Jesus ever tells us how to pray, he starts by pointing out two ways that we pray incorrectly. And what I think about, it's kind of like, imagine that we were in the gym and you were coaching a basketball team, right? Which is fun because we're in basketball season and we got little kids in here playing basketball a couple times a week. Imagine that you're a coach and you, you want to teach kids the correct shooting form, okay? It's like what Jesus is doing is he's coming, he's coming up. He's like, hey guys, um, before I tell you how to shoot a basketball, I want you to notice, you see, you see that kid over there? You notice how he's doing this thing with two hands? Hey, you don't want to do that. And then he comes and he's like, hey guys, you notice how there's this kid over here and um, I don't know, they're not using their other hand to guide the ball, right? Jesus is trying like a coach lovingly to say, hey, there, there's some different ways we can do this wrong. Let me help you see some ways that aren't the right way to do this before I even teach you the right mechanics. And so I think if you summarize what he's saying about both groups of people, he's saying don't turn prayer into a performance. Don't turn prayer into a performance. And the first group he talks about are the hypocrites, the Pharisees, the religious elite. And to them, he says, don't turn prayer into a performance to be seen by others. 
So the problem was what, that they cared more about being seen by people than heard by God. That, that's what they prayed for. They prayed so people saw them. They did not pray so God actually heard them. They cared more about their glory and their fame than they cared about God's. The audience of their prayers was not God, it was people. And so let's be, let's be clear. The issue isn't that they were praying in public. Of course, God's people should pray in public and pray together. The issue is that they were praying in public without a habit of praying in private. That's the issue here, is that they don't care about making prayer privately a habit. They just want people to see their righteousness. And so Jesus, I love how Jesus does this. He offers such a simple solution. He goes, hey, go pray in a closet. Right? Because here's what's true. It's really hard to be a hypocrite when you're on your knees in a closet. When nobody sees you, when nobody knows, when you're sitting probably on a dirty floor. I'm not saying it's impossible to be a hypocrite in there. I'm just saying it's a lot harder. And what the, what the audience would have known is that most Jewish homes at this time had one, maybe two rooms. And for many of them, the only room with a door was the storage closet that maybe had a lock on it. Which makes me ask a lot of questions about privacy with a, a big family. I got lots of questions that the Bible doesn't have answers for. But Jesus is saying, hey, you know how you have that one room, that one closet, that pantry? That's where you should go pray. Instead of doing it where people can see you, pray in the closet. And so here, here's a question. Do you have a consistent time and place where you can pray unobserved, undisturbed and unheard by anybody but God? Do you have a consistent time and place where you're able to do this? Because what I've recognized is that if we don't carve out that time, it's actually easier for us to have regular times of prayer when other people are involved. Over a meal. As you're putting kids to bed when somebody shares something difficult going on in their life. And let's be clear, we should pray at those times, right? It's important for us to be people marked by prayer, but if we're not careful, what happens is that those are the only time we pray, and then we end up looking a lot more like these hypocrites than we want to. And so he says, hey, don't, don't turn prayer into a performance to be seen by others. But then he talks to another group of people. It says he's, he's talking to the Gentiles. He's talking to the non-Jews or, or the pagans. And he says to them, he says, don't turn prayer into a performance to manipulate God. If you notice, the Pharisees were focused on the audience. The Gentiles are focused on outcome. It says that they'd say the same things over and over and over again, so they'll be heard, so that their prayers will be answered. And so, because they want to secure a certain outcome, they babble on and on and on. And it makes sense because these people were used to dealing with gods who were indifferent towards them, that they had to coerce, that they had to move. And, and, and Jesus is saying, hey, you can't approach God that way. That is not what our God is like. And so I think one example of this in the, in the New Testament is in Acts 19. It says that this kind of mob of non-Christians in Ephesus chanted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. That's what Acts 19, 34 says. 
that basically what they're doing is because they want to win, because they're trying to give their God glory, they just say the same thing over and over and over and over and over again because they think that is how they will get the outcome that they want. And so this reminds me of a couple years back, I was in California and we visited Venice Beach, which if you've never been to Venice Beach, let me tell you, it's a strange place because it's basically the Myrtle Beach of California, which that statement in and of itself doesn't make any sense. And as I was recounting this story with Lauren, she was like, yeah, it was a scary place. And so we, we, were, we were there, and they've got Muscle Beach, which is weird, and they've got all the weird shops with airbrushes and all the things, right? And I remember we're just walking down the like, main strip there at Venice Beach, and um, there's these guys that are performing, just kind of in the middle of the street. They're doing stunts, they're dancing, they're jumping over each other, and so like, stop and watch, because, I mean, what else are we going to do? And it just goes on and on. And on. I'm talking about like 20 minutes, 20 minutes. And we weren't even there when this performance started. And so eventually it builds to this guy is going to do a jump over like way more people than you think is humanly possible. And he's like, you know, like he's trying to hype himself up and then they just stop and they all reach into their back pocket and they pull out a garbage bag and they're shaking us down for money. The whole thing was a big performance to try to manipulate us and to make us feel bad that we had been there so long waiting and watching that we had no choice but to give them money. I was like, oh, sorry, I don't have cash. As you try to coerce me, yeah, I take off, right? But here's the thing. I think that what, what Jesus is saying is that that's how the Gentiles approach prayer, that they have this performance where they go on and on and on because they think by doing that, they secure an outcome. They pray to get stuff out of God like a genie. And the myth that they believed and that I think some of us can believe is that the more I talk, the more likely God is to listen. And here's why that's a myth is that we have a heavenly father who, who is near to us, close to us, wants us to come to him and we don't have to coerce him. And so that means that how we pray actually says something about what we think about God. What does it mean if your view of God means that you have to motivate him to be good or to do good things? What does it mean in how you think about God if you think you can manipulate him or outsmart him by saying certain things or praying for a certain amount of time? And here's the thing. Jesus isn't saying we can't repeat ourselves when we pray because Jesus did. Jesus isn't saying we can't pray for hours because he did that. He's not saying that we can't be persistent in asking for the same thing because he tells us to be. What he's saying is that it can't be inauthentic and meaningless words that we say over and over and over. And so like he did for the hypocrites, Jesus offers a solution and it's to know what God is actually like, right? They're approaching God thinking that he's mean, that he's stingy. And Jesus says, hey, no, no, the God to whom you pray is like a loving father, And like a loving father, God knows what we need. His heart is merciful and generous towards us. And so what he's gonna say in the next chapter is, hey, earthly parents, you know how to give good things to your kids. And if that's true for you, how much more is that true for our heavenly father?
And so the correction he gives is to say, hey, the way that you approach God matters. He's not, a, he's not a God who wants to withhold from you. He's not a God who's just clinging to all this good stuff saying, let's see if you can shake me and stuff away to get it to come out. It's no, no, no. Our God is a loving heavenly father. And so here's what, here's what that means for us. This is good news. It means that you and I don't have to be perfect prayers. It means that we don't have to get our words exactly right. It doesn't even mean that we have to know exactly what we're supposed to say. It means that we just have to go with God and say, hey, God, I, I need your help. It means we don't have to log some like minimum amount of time to get something that we want. It just means we have to go and approach God. And so one of the, one of the quotes I came across this week was by theologian John Stott. I thought this was helpful. He said, God is not ignorant so that we need to instruct him. It's not like he's missing information. And then he says, nor hesitant that we need to persuade him. God knows what we need and he is ready. He's willing, like a good loving father. He wants to give it to us. All we have to do is ask. And one of the questions that I know that I've, I've gotten over the years from people is, if God knows what we need, then why do we need to ask? I think it's a good question. If God already knows what we need, why do we need to ask? And I think firstly, the way we answer that is just to say, because God tells us to, right? He set it up in such a way that if, if we have a need, he knows what we need, but he still wants us to ask, right? But I think deeper, I think some of the reason why is that he wants prayer to be a thing that deepens our relationship with him. And it reinforces our dependence on him. And so just think about this, parents, as you think about your relationship with your kid. Right, like there's, there's a certain age where we're not even really in this age yet with Ella, but I've seen this, right? Where like kids, there's, there's an age where they know what they want. They're running around. They have a little bit of autonomy to do something, but they're in the age where literally like everything they're gonna do, they have to go and ask their parents. Hey mom, can I do this thing? Hey mom, can I eat this thing? Right, and here's the thing, right? We don't do that as parents because we want to withhold good things from them. Right? That's, that's not what it is at all. Ultimately, we want to protect them and we want to bless them. But part of what happens in them needing to ask is it reminds them, hey, you are not autonomous individuals. You are not the one who's in charge. You have to ask because we actually know what's best for you better than you do. And so I think about right now, Ella's favorite snack is Ritz crackers. And I think that if you let her, she would only eat Ritz crackers. And um, the way that she says cracker right now is gaga. So just at any moment in time, it could be the moment she wakes up in the morning. It could be the moment before she's going to bed. There's always a chance. Gaga, 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 gaga peas, gaga peas, right? She's, she's just asking for it, right? And one of my favorite things as her father is to walk over, get out a Ritz cracker, hand it to her, and there's this moment where she will look up at me, smile and say, and then just go running away. And here's what happens. In that moment where she's looking up at me, I'm handing her the cracker and that smile is coming over her face. There's something that's happening there relationally for both of us that I can't fully articulate and understand. And I think the same thing is true for us as we pray to God. That just like my heart is to give her rich crackers, but also knowing that there are times I gotta say no. 
Hey, you can't have that rich cracker. Because if you have too many rich crackers, you ain't going to eat your chicken nuggets, no protein. You ain't going to grow. And for the life of me, Ella, please be taller than me. Please. Maybe you see a heart for what I'm praying for, you know. And so here's the thing. That is the God that you and I get to approach in prayer. That's his heart. He is a loving, gracious, heavenly father. And as we see his heart towards us, it should motivate us to want to come to him in prayer. And so after Jesus says, hey, this is how we don't pray, he then gives us a pattern for how to pray. And I say pattern because he doesn't give us words to memorize. If he did, he would say, pray this. He doesn't say, pray like this. And so the words are powerful because they instruct us and they correct us in how to pray. But these words, they're not just powerful in and of themselves, right? And so notice, look at what he says about how we should pray. Starting in verse nine, he says, pray like this. Our father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. And so if you notice the structure, half of this of what Jesus teaches us to pray is focused on glorifying God. The other half is focused on us asking for help. Like cut, split, right down the middle. And here's, I just want to acknowledge it um, because Jesus talks about it and, and we're not gonna have time to, to fully unpack it. He, he talks about the fact that if you and I are people who are forgiven people, that we should also be people who forgive people. I don't, don't miss that. He's saying forgiveness should be something that flows out of people who are forgiven. <clears throat> All right, there's just, he says so much. We can't, we can't do more, can't, we don't have time to do more than that in that section. But notice what he says. He says, pray like this. Our father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. So what Jesus says is, hey, first and foremost, we have to make sure that we are clear on who we are talking to, right? The subject of our prayers is God, our father who's in heaven. And so we've already talked about the fact that we approach God as a father, but what's interesting is that you and I live thousands of years after Jesus has said this. When Jesus says this, this is a brand new idea. People in the Old Testament did not consistently talk about God as their father. He was Yahweh, the Lord, God. There, there was a, a very clear distance between the people and God. And because of what Jesus did, Hebrews tells us we can approach God boldly. In this moment, that's not true. So the fact that he's saying our father in heaven, totally new idea. So notice Jesus is saying your God is personal and approachable like a father, but he is also in heaven. He is above, he is almighty, he is holy, which means separate, distinct from us in creation. Which begs the question, if God is holy, why do we need to pray that his name would be kept holy? What we're, what we're praying for is that you and I would be people who know and acknowledge God rightly. 
We're saying, God, I want, to, I want to know you. I want to acknowledge you. you are enthroned in heaven. And what I'm doing is I want to acknowledge you. I want to put you in your proper place. Right? I'm not telling you something new about who you are. I'm reaffirming what I know to be true about you. So we're saying, God, help me to know you more fully. Help me to fear you properly. Help me to respect you rightly. And so we, what Jesus is telling us is that proper, play, proper prayer begins by putting God in his proper place. And here's why I think it's important to, to make sure we're clear on this is that if you're like me, it's easy to pray and start by just asking God, hey God, I need you to do this. Hey God, can you, can you, can you do this thing for me? Can you help me in this thing? Like, hey, thank you for that thing that I asked you to do and that you did for me. And it's really easy to approach God in prayer and never actually give him the praise that he deserves. And so Jesus is saying, hey, the way that we pray the right way is to start by giving God adoration and praise. By saying, God, you, you, are, you are close to me and that is incredible, but you are also far above me. And so I'm just curious, does that characterize how you pray? When you pray, do you default to jump in and ask, hey God, can you do this thing for me? Hey God, can you help me in this thing? Do you default by starting with yourself in prayer? Or do you start by giving God the attention that he deserves? And what's interesting is putting God in his proper place is not just about acknowledging who he is in his character. It's also you and I willingly taking our desires, our dreams, and our plans and surrendering them and submitting them to him. Which is why the next verse says, may your kingdom come soon and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's real easy for me to live my life hoping that my little kingdom will grow. It's really easy for me to live my life hoping that the things that I want to do, the dreams and plans and desires of my heart it's easy to live like those are the most important things. And Jesus says, hey, when we pray, we need to take those things and surrender them and submit them to the Lord. What he's saying is that when we pray, what we're saying is that our lives are better when God's in control. It would not be good for God to let us call the shots. But, but take a moment, just think about how you pray for people in situations. Think about how you pray for people. When you pray for somebody, do you, do you assume that you know what's best for them? Do you think that your plans for them and God's plans for them automatically line up? Or do you ask for God's will to be done in their life? That doesn't mean we don't ask God for things, but I think that I can approach things praying for people thinking I know the best case scenario for this person, God make this happen. What about for situations? Do you assume that you always know the best case scenario? Do you presume to know God's plans? Or is there some time when you pray to say, hey God, I don't, I don't actually know what you're up to here, but I'm asking you to help me see what are you doing because I wanna get on board with that. The point of my prayer is not to get you on board with my plans. It's to get in alignment with what you are doing. And so it's only after we acknowledge God for who he is and surrender and submit ourselves that we're in the right place to ask God
for anything. And so then Jesus says, okay, here's the pattern for how we ask for things. Give us today the food we need, right? Other translations, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. I think, it's, I think it's important to acknowledge that because Jesus teaches us how to ask for things, it shows us that it is okay for us to ask for things. Right, earlier I said, hey, we don't start by asking for things. We start by giving God glory, but that doesn't mean we're not allowed to ask God for what we need. He's a loving father who wants to pour out blessings on his people. And so as I was thinking about how, what is Jesus saying in terms of how we ask for things, physically, what he's saying is ask for needs, not for greeds. It rhymes, so it's true, right? I got a couple moves in there, mm. <laughs> Right, think, think about this. Give me today what I need. Give me the food that I need, right? You and I, we live in a society where people talk about living paycheck to paycheck. So you're talking about two weeks, a month at a time. In this day and age, laborers were paid every day, which means that if they were not paid for the work they did on Tuesday, they had no money to buy food on Wednesday. So Jesus, Jesus is saying, hey, ask God for what you need, right? He's not saying, hey, ask God to give you a job that allows you to stack up your 401k. But, he, but it's clear that he's saying, hey, it's okay for you to ask for things. Right, And so the question that I don't think we can answer fully is where is the line of what we're allowed to ask for? I don't know. Ask and see what God says yes to, right? So like, I think it's probably okay for you to ask God to provide what you need to have a car. I'm not sure that he's gonna provide what you need to get a Ferrari, at least not one that runs, right? But it's important. Jesus is saying, hey, ask God for what you need. Right, one of the things that I've loved that, that Pastor Ron says is he goes, God, you're a cattle, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Will you sell one so we can have what we need? It's awesome. It's one of my favorite things that I've heard him say. Every time he says it, I just can't help but smile. Right, so yes, we need to pray for physical needs. But notice that there's also a category that Jesus gives us where we need to pray for spiritual needs. And so I think it's important for us to pause and ask are we clear on what we need from God spiritually, right? Like I think if you polled people, what do you need physically? We'd have answers ready to go. I'm curious if we would have answers as quickly for what we need from God spiritually. And so one of the things he tells us to pray for, he, he says, forgive us our sins, which I think is interesting because if you're a, a Christian, does it seem strange to pray for God to forgive your sins if he has forgiven your sins? Right, so what's happening here is that when you and I become Christians, when we pray to receive Christ, when we surrender our lives to him, our position with God is safe and secure. But what happens is that you and I still continue to sin. And what happens is that when we sin, something happens in our relationship with God. And so part of our prayer life needs to be confessing the sin that we still do and asking God to forgive it. Not because we've been separated from God, that our position is cut off from him, but we know that when somebody sins against us, there was still, like, like when, when Ella slapped me in the face yesterday repeatedly because I didn't give her what she wanted, 
She did not stop being my daughter. But there was something that happened relationally in that moment that unfortunately she doesn't really fully understand how she's supposed to make right. (laughs) She did say sorry, but she did not mean it. And so 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So let me ask you, is confession, repentance, asking for forgiveness a part of your prayer life? Because Jesus tells us it should be. But what's interesting is Jesus doesn't just give us a category for retroactively saying, hey, God, I sinned before you in this way. What he then says is, hey, you should ask for deliverance, strength, or guidance out of of temptation. He's saying, hey, God, would you lead me away from sin? Right? And and, and he's being very all-encompassing. He's saying any kind of sin, sin that comes from temptation, from my flesh, or from the enemy. He's saying, hey, I know that there's temptation that comes, and I need you to help me. And so let me ask you this. Are you in the habit of asking God for his help to follow him rightly? Are there things that you pray against? Right? There are tendencies that if you're honest, you know that, you're, that you are wired towards in your sinful flesh. My question is, are you in a habit of specifically saying, God, would you put to death this sin in me? God, put to death gossip. God, put to death fear of man. Put to death sexual temptation. And then do you pray for new godly desires? Not just, God, keep me from this thing, but the opposite, right? Contentment, building up of other people with my words, self-control. And here's the thing, this is what's so cool, is that we have a loving heavenly father who's already gone to the greatest lengths so that you and I can have a relationship with him. Which means that if we ask for his help in following him, there's no way he's not going to help us. And so, let me ask you this question as we, as we close our time together. How does your prayer life need to change or evolve? How does your prayer life need to change or evolve? Does it need to become a more consistent habit? Do you need to take a step practically to make God your audience? Do you need to change your approach by sharpening your view of God? Do you need to start by focusing on him? Do you need to humble yourself and start asking for God's help? We have a God who's over all things that we can approach boldly because he is personal and approachable. And so here's what I realize is that, and it's possible that there are some people in here this morning that, you're not yet a follower of Jesus. And if that's true, I'm grateful that you're here. And it's likely true that if, if that's you, this idea of prayer probably doesn't make a ton of sense. The idea of praying to a God who you can't see, the idea of calling somebody father who you don't know. And I want you to know that if that's you this morning, you, you can begin a relationship with God today. And so what I want to do is I want to create an opportunity for all of us to respond. And so in a moment, the band is going to lead us. We're going to get a chance to sing together. And I'm going to be in the back for that song. 
and then after the service. And, and here's what I wanna open up, is that if, if you have something that you would like prayed for, I would love to pray with you. If you have questions about what we've studied today, I would love to talk with you. Here's what I know. There's so much we could talk about in terms of prayer. We didn't get to talk about a lot of it. So if you've got questions, if there was something that didn't make sense to you, if there's something that you want clarification on, I would love to talk with you. And if this morning you wanna know, how do I begin a relationship with God? How do I get to know this God as my heavenly father? Then I would love to talk to you about that as well. And right, so here's the good news. I just created a lot of categories. And so what that means is that nobody knows why you move and talk to me if you do come. So my prayer would be, is that if, if you need to, that you would. So let me pray for us. And then we're gonna get a chance to sing together.